Hi everyone, this is Ksenia Montan and welcome to another episode of People's Marketing Podcast, where I talk to top marketers about the story of their careers, choices, mistakes, wins and imperfections of their work life. My guest today is probably one of the most badass women in marketing I have ever met. <laughs> uh, Jess Greenwood uh, is the global CMO at RGA and 2019 Ad Age Woman to Watch. Prior to RGA, Jess worked as the managing editor of Contagious Magazine and founder of the Contagious Consultancy Insider. She joined RGA in 2012 as director of business strategy, uh, followed by a stint on Google's in-house creative partnerships team in 2014. Afterwards, Jess returned to RGA in 2015 to helm the strategy department. And now, great news, she's overseeing 17 offices worldwide as RGA's global chief marketing officer. Jess, thank you so, so much for joining us today on People of Marketing. Oh, no, thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, the way I love to start this interview is by, you know, walking a bit through your career, looking backwards and, and trying to connect the dots of what happened along your journey. Um, and the first question is, what would you say was your first interaction with marketing ever? And what got you into marketing in the first place? Uh, so I think my, as, as with a lot of people in this industry, I got into it by accident. I wasn't <laughs> focused on on what I wanted to be doing and um when I left college I sort of bummed around a bit I lived in Italy for a couple of years I lived in France for a year and uh came back to London not knowing what to do and I'm I'm dating myself here but I applied for a job I applied for all the jobs I could find in the back pages of the Guardian so um yeah sort of early 2000s and the um the one that I got an interview for that, that gave me a job happened to be for this sort of media monitoring company. And one of my first jobs was writing articles for a magazine that they published around um, uh, film production and commercial production and, you know, yeah, all the music video and things like that. And so that was my first sort of indicator. I was just like, oh, advertising is kind of really cool. And people who work in it are really creative and interesting. And I did not know prior to that that you could get paid really for being creative. I grew up in quite a traditional environment where um, you were sort of, if you did well, you would be a doctor or a lawyer. If you did slightly better, <laughs> right. well, you would be a journalist. You know, there's kind of, those, those, it was a very traditional kind of path. So the idea that this was an industry that you could work in and you could get paid to be creative was just mind blowing to me. And it continues to be mind blowing to me, actually. I had a, a meeting yesterday with a client where one of our planners said to the client, if we weren't talking to you about this we would be paying you to talk about this because it's just it's, we were talking about something that's so interesting to all of us and it was just yeah so I, I I love this industry but I fell into it by accident I think is the best question and walk us a bit through your career afterwards you were with this company in the beginning in in, in the UK and then you made a move uh, to New York and you never left <laughs> I, know, I know it's uh, yeah New York is kind of hard to leave um so yes I basically um I sort of bounced around a little bit at the beginning of my career not too too much I worked in a music company and then came back to this uh, this first company that was working out that was starting to publish a magazine called Contagious and there's a guy there called Paul Kemp Robertson who was the editor 
who we met and immediately sort of loved each other. And he was like, you should come and write on this uh, for me. So I worked uh, with Contagious, as you said, it's an amazing magazine, super focused on uh, innovative exercises in branding, design, technology, and popular culture. And it was, it was the best job. I swear to God, on my deathbed, like I will be thinking about the fact that I had that job in my twenties and just regretting <laughs> that thing because I basically got to fly around the world to all of these different countries, meet a ton of really creative, interesting people who were trying to change things and trying to do different things, um, and then write about it. And it was just, it was magical. So I, I was with Contagious for a while, and then I moved with them over to New York. And uh, I'd been in New York for a little while, and then one of the people I had to interview for uh, the magazine was a guy called Bob Greenberg, who's the founder of a company called RGA, which is where I work now. And the more he talked about it, the more I was like, oh man, like this company is fascinating. So I made a short list. I, there's like a, three companies that I would go and work for. Um, it was RGA, Google, and Nike. And I ended up working at RGA. Um, and now Nike is my client. And I also, and Google is my client. And I also got to work at Google a little bit as well in-house. So I'm, I, it's having a focus in what you want to do. That is the only time I've ever thought I have a focus in what I want to do. And it works out really well. So maybe I should be more fo focused in general is the thing that, yes. <laughs> so looking at your career, I see that, you know, about seven or even more, you know, uh, years you spent at RGA. So in the, in the agency world, and it seems like it suits you very well. Um, do you have any thoughts on why do you think you chose uh, or ended, you know, in the agency world? So I think two things really. Um, one, I think I'm lucky because RGA isn't very typical. Um, and we do lots of different kinds of things here. So I get to be exposed to lots of brains all the time who know how to do things I don't know how to do. So there's, you know, we have consultants here, we have experienced designers here, we have, you know, technologists. There's a lot of uh, interesting people. Like my, my peers on the, the leadership team are, are fascinating people who have brains that work in totally different ways to mine. So I'm grateful to be in an agency which is never ever boring. So and the other thing that I sort of realized when I went to Google for a little bit and it was so fascinating and I learned so much, but then eventually decided that it wasn't for me. Um, not because it's not an amazing company, but I started thinking when I left Google about what it is truly that makes me happy in a job. Not like being able to tell people that you work at Google, which is awesome. Or, <laughs> You know, it, I mean, it's, you know, what yeah. people have heard of is like a great, you know, it's super fun. But um, it was basically, I had to think about like, what were the things that like genuinely got me out of bed in the morning? And it's, it's, it's three things. It's um, being around people who know how to do things I don't know how to do. Um, and if you're, Google is a very big company. So if you're in your small team, quite often those team members will know how to do that. You know, you have a lot of the same skills, whereas here I'm with different people all the time, which is great. Uh, being able to work on lots of different things at once is the second thing. Like I am extremely uh, motivated by having like 20 things in my head at any one time, which again is hard to do in a big company and much easier to do if you're at the top of a medium sized one. Um, and the third thing is I really, really like juicy, intractable problems. I really like Mm. The, the clients that I love working on here are clients with really gigantic business challenges and um, you know where you've really got to start thinking differently in order to kind of you know help drag them into the 21st century and I that's not 
something that you get to do at a large tech company because the challenges that they have are different challenges. They have, they have lots of money and they have um, a very, very strong sense of identity and product and all of that stuff. And any, any challenges that do emerge in that tech world are, um, they're not core to the center of a business, I say. Whereas the problems that we're solving here are like existential problems which I really, really enjoy. So I had to think about all of these different things. And I, I realized this about myself and I had to break the news to my mother that I was leaving Google and <laughs> she took it harder than I did. And it was, um, so yeah, these things, are, it, it, it takes those kind of pivotal moments in your career to figure out what you actually want rather than what you think you want. Um, and that is, and what I want is something that looks and feels very much like RGA. And it's, you know, I can see it from here. I'm sitting in a, in a, big glass meeting room looking out at a very diverse and interesting group of people all working on different problems um and it's buzzing and it's creative and it's fun and like i just yeah it's it, it's very very addictive i think right so when i was researching you for this for this interview or you know rather stalking you <laughs> and right on your linkedin profile you know beyond global chief marketing officer was this short tagline keeping our ga weird and I think oh, yeah. it sounds, I think it sounds amazing, uh, <laughs> but like, how is RGA weird? Uh, so keeping RGA weird, that's my job. So here's the thing, like we are an extremely diversified company. I don't mean diverse, although we are diverse. We're a diversified company in that we do lots and lots of different things. And we're not um, an ad agency, although we do do advertising. Uh, we're not strictly a product design shop, although we do do product design. We're not a consultancy, although we do do consultancy work. So one of the things that I've learned over the sort of eight years on and off that I've been here is that RGA does its best when it sort of revels in its difference and it does its worst when it tries to be like other companies. So when I took over this job, um, the first thing I said to the team was just like, look, this is the brief. If we can't be different, we're not going to do it. Um, and I have two teams. I have um, all of the business development and organic growth teams. I, I basically have to grow the brand and the business. So I have the marketing team and I have the um, uh, business development team. And um, we are being a lot more choiceful about the work that we take on. We are being a lot more careful about the places that we show up publicly. And we're being a lot more kind of... Um, uh, just careful about what kind of company we want to keep. I right. like I like that I work at a weird company and I like that it's different and I don't want to otherwise I would go and work at a big traditional advertising agency and like I you know I don't want to do that. So keeping RGA weird is like extremely important to our uh, identity and culture. And then the other thing to note is that RGA because um it's a very outsider place. So Bob, the guy who founded it, um, got into production design and film and, and was rejected from a lot of different industries because he has very profound dyslexia. So, you know, he can't write or spell. Right, yeah. Um, or communicate verbally, very, uh, communicate uh, in written words very well, but he did very well in the film industry. So he, he was this kind of outsider producer that came into the film industry with like a technological background. Um, and all the work that he did there. And so he keeps, he keeps sort of inventing things from the outside of industries. And I like RGA's credibility in, in being an outsider. So I'm trying to make us a bit more outsider. That's what I mean when I say keeping RGA weird. It's not very specific, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's a sort of cultural shift. And um, I, yeah, it's a, it's a fun thing. As a, when I took the job, I took it because um, 
instead of the, the CMO role at an agency is quite often just corporate communications and we yeah. do do corporate communications but the way that I spoke to Sean who's our CEO about it is saying look I would like to take this on as if I'm getting a CMO role at a 2,000 person strong company whose product happens to be creative services in the brains of its people. So I can run it like a brand basically and I can I can strategize the growth of that brand I can strategize the growth of that business and he's like sure he, he was like do whatever you want to do. <laughs> How does that translate, you know, in, in day-to-day work, like try and describe, you know, I know there's no such thing as a typical day um, in, in your, you know, position, but still, what does it look like? How, how does it translate, you know, in day-to-day work? Like what's the first thing you tackle when you get to the office or like what's the first thing you check on your phone in the morning? What does it well, look to be you? Like? <laughs> um, that's interesting. Well, my day is lots of running around barking instructions. I have lots of weight. <laughs> which is like a whole different like it's it's a lot of energy that you need it's the communications team the marketing team and also the business development team so everything's sort of quite high paced and interesting um today i'm doing uh, a couple of interesting things i'm working having a kickoff with our um our communications team quite often was not part of the creative process which to my mind was a mistake because PR people are really, really good at shaping ideas and understanding how they're going to hit the market. So we have made um, a couple of people on the communications team are now operating as sort of rogue creatives within the creative process and are collaborating there. So that's been really fun. I've been working with um, Kelly Harrison, who's uh, leading the communications team um, to uh, work on a couple of pitches that we have uh, running right now and a couple of things we have going into production. So we're still very much involved in the creative process. Then I've got... um, a recap of a pitch that happened yesterday in Boston that I have to go and uh, tell everybody about and tell them what the next steps are. And then I've got uh, four bits of uh, releases about new business wins that have got to go out uh, in the next kind of two weeks. And then I've got to get on the phone with our London team who are pitching on uh, Monday next week and need to check in on things. So it's basically every half hour (laughs) is something different. And I, I would not have it any other way um because i just and it it it's so dynamic and i love the people that i work with are so good at just getting to the point and getting through it and yeah it's it's fantastic but it also means that i'm trying to the thing that i'm trying to work right now is like if my job is to protect the brand and grow the business then you have to give yourself enough headspace to make the decisions that you want to make. I can't just be saying yes, no all the time. So a lot of the, I have an instinct about what it is that we're trying to do here, but I'm working with um, my boss, our CEO, um, our, you know, uh, uh, chief strategy officer, Barry Waxman. We're like working together on like what our growth plan is going to be for the next three years and sort of taking time for those more strategic planning moments is something that I find super fascinating. Do you have it? Yeah. Do you have any any other you know tips in terms of like staying product, productive? Because I imagine you know, having such a vibrant uh, week and day, it's it's hard you know to stay focused and stay grounded and get the most out of your day. Do you have like any tips and tricks on how you plan your work, your schedule, your tasks? So I am very lucky in that I have a job now that suits the way my brain works down to the ground. Like I literally I have a schedule. I walk from room to room. I like. People tell me what they need me to do, I do it. It's kind of super uh, well-focused for me. The thing that I would say for, and the thing that I would say, here's a tip or trick, if the way of working does not suit, that in your current job does not suit your brain, (laughs) you might not be in the right job. Right. And it's not true that everybody in advertising has to work in this kind of very schizophrenic, sort of frenetic kind of way. 
Um, there are ways to be quieter and to move more quietly and to be more thoughtful. Um, but you have to find those corners for yourself. And I think it's just, um, there, there's room within organizations, there's room to find a way of working that fits your personality. Um, right. I, I find productivity, the whole productivity debate is only a challenge when, when you're, you're not the right place yeah, when yeah. you're not in your right space exactly because then you're thinking like how am i going to get all this done and like if you're in in the right flow it it sort of it tends to be easier the one thing that i would say as well is like i had a i had a baby um she's 15 months old now so i have a, a year old daughter and congratulations um, thank you she is unbelievably awesome um but she I have found it incredibly difficult. I used to rely on being able to turn my laptop back on at night when I got home and do work yeah. at home. Now I'm finding like one, not only do I want to spend time with her, but even after she goes to bed, I'm tired. Like I'm getting old. So I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to be clear with people about the fact that I'm not always on anymore. Yeah. Um, and that's not a reasonable expectation. And I think the industry could do a better job with uh, helping people sort of set some of those boundaries i think because i think i'm lucky i'm in a position right now where people will wait for me but it takes a long time to get there and for a really long time i just had to work my ass off you know so it's interesting everyone thinks it gets to it's more work the higher up you get and it isn't actually it's less um, <laughs> for you so like you, you do get to the further up in your career you get there's like a little bit of a breathing room in a way that there isn't earlier on so right that's so keep climbing basically that's very counterintuitive, actually. Um, it is. So I have a follow-up question on, on this topic that, that you just mentioned. I know you lead uh, Woman Up, you know, our GA's business resource group designed to help women within the, the group uh, define and realize uh, success on their own terms. Um, and, you know, often in, in society, we have like this huge misconception that as a woman, once you have a child, uh, your, you know, your career will, will take a hit and you might... You know, never recover and you'll stagnate yet after you became a mom you had this hugely exciting uh, career change career jump uh, tell us the secret <laughs> how did you do it I think this is extremely inspiring you know as a young woman to to get some advice from from someone like you on, on this topic here you know how you did it how you managed it and understand like that this is possible it's possible to have you know kids and a career it is. It's, I mean, it's, I'm not going to say it's not hard because it kind of is. And yeah, still, of course. People are telling me um, that it gets harder actually because like Annie, my daughter, is not, she doesn't sort of miss me as much now. I think it gets harder as they get older. But the thing that, um, here's, here's the thing. So I'm going to be sort of brutally honest about this one. It took me a wild long time to get pregnant. It took, I think, about six years um, of a lot of... Uh, fertility treatment it was very painful it was very slow and like I was very unhappy for quite a lot of it and um I finally through um finally managed to get pregnant through the like magic of science and um had my baby at the age of 39 and then I read in the New York Times and like I cannot speak for anyone other than myself I read in the New York Times that basically if you have a child between 25 and 35 that's when you struggle because your salary doesn't recover and you're, um, you know, you're, you're at that point where you're like climbing the ladder as fast as you possibly can. And like, if you have a child before 25 or after 35, it, you can kind of bounce back a little bit more easily. 
I do not want that to be true because I think women should be able to have babies yeah. whenever they want to have babies. I think I want that to be, I think it's a, a statistic representation of basically a workplace that is not designed uh, still for women. But um, I think the thing that I have found in returning is that one, my office is extremely, RGA is very supportive of returning mothers, which I did not know because, until it was my experience. And I have checked with lots and lots of people here and they're like, yeah, it was actually kind of awesome. They gave us, you know, I didn't want to come back until seven months. So I didn't come back till seven months. I didn't, um, and in America that's, in, you know, that never yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, people who are still working from home are much happier kind of, they're not even freelance, they're full-time people who are working from home because they want to spend more time. They don't want that like commute time. Um, they're, you know, we uh, assign buddies when you get back. So you've got a working mother buddy who can like um, talk you through like how to pump and where the pumping rooms are and like <laughs> talk to you when you're having like a miserable time and all of that stuff. So it basically, it can be done and I don't currently feel like I'm compromising that much. But okay. I do feel that um, I think the rubber, I'm, I, the one thing that I've learned about parenting, and I want to be incredibly humble about this, is you should never make any grand pronouncements about how it is. Because in two weeks time, it will change and you will regret having said that. <laughs> So basically right now I'm like having a great time. I get to come to work and have fun. I get to go home and have fun. My daughter um, spends, uh, my husband is able to work from home a little bit more. Uh, she has an amazing caregiver who is like a, a wonderful person who is teaching her all sorts of amazing things. And we're very privileged and fortunate to have that. So I come up to work and have fun. I go home and have fun with my daughter. Um, and I'm feeling just like I have the best of both worlds right now. And I understand that that is not a privilege that's available to everybody. But I do understand that in a couple of years time or maybe in a year's time, it will get harder and harder to leave her. Um, and then I don't know what you do. And then you have to work it out. And then the compromises start. So I think it's, uh, I, it's, a, it's a very, being a working mother is an extremely personal and I would not just personal, I mean, it's a very individual journey and everybody works out the balance of it that just about works for them, I think. And so one of the things that I've found when women in advertising are talking about being a mother or like sharing advice on being a mother, I think the best one that I would have is just like, look, don't feel guilty. You're doing what you need to do. And also the way that other people do it doesn't have to be the way that you do it. So just find the version that makes you feel most like it works for you. Um, and then, and then take it from there. It's such an individual journey, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, uh, Jess, for, for sharing this. I think this is, uh, a great story. Uh, I know it's a personal question, so I appreciate you, you, you did oh, share all of that. So going a bit backwards to, to, you know, to the beginning of your career, you know, we've all had this, uh, seemingly insignificant events at that time uh, that went on to actually change our lives. Did you have anything like that? Yes, uh, <laughs> I did. I, I know what it was. And it was basically, this is something, um, so there's a guy called Nick Law, who's now at Apple, who is now a dear friend of mine, actually, who um, 
was the chief creative officer of RGA when I started here. And then he went to publicist for a bit and then he went over to Apple. And he's a great creative, um, very charming, lovely Australian man, like a kind person um, and a great, yeah, a, a sort of very insightful and thoughtful person. And he, um, when I first started working at RGA, they didn't really know what to do with me. So they put me in the new business department. And it was an amazing place to start because it was, uh, I got to meet all the executives really quickly. Um, and I got to meet them when they were in pitch plan, which is like, somebody told me once that everybody gets demoted during a pitch. So basically I was crawling around on the floor with Nick Law <laughs> with a stapling together, like copies of pitch documents. And he's like the chief creative officer and like, RGS oh, is still very much like that. It's quite a sort of humble place in that way. Um, but I was sort of panicking because I was working on this pitch and I felt like I was failing and I didn't really know what the job was. And I, I wasn't, I, I, you know, I, I think anyone who was around me at that time would probably also say that I wasn't doing that well. And I was sort of panicking and flapping at him about like, oh God, but what about this? What should I do? What should, you know, all this stuff. And he said, he, he told me the story. He said, if you ever, he said, did I ever tell you about my mother? And I was like, no. And he said, <laughs> my mother was quite a, a sort of uh, uncommunicative. He grew up in Australia. His mother was sort of, um, I think, some kind of Celtic, like Scottish descent and was not a very communicative woman in that she never told them that she loved them. She never kind of, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of like maternal touchy feeliness going on. And he said, do you want to know what I took from that? And I was like, what? And he said, to never ever take my sense of self from what anyone else thinks. Hmm. And I was like, huh, okay, that's interesting. And I didn't really think much of it at the time. And then like about 20 minutes later, I was like, oh my God, my entire life is about what everyone else thinks. And was like, I care all the time. I'm devoting so much like mental, like effort and, and brain space and, uh, you know, sort of tap dancing to caring about what other people think. And it really was, it, it just, it, sometimes it doesn't sound that profound, but sometimes people tell you the thing that you need to hear at the moment that you need to hear it. And they don't even know. So years later, when I said to him, like, dude, you changed my life. He was like, what he like didn't <laughs> say he wasn't trying to change my life he was just telling me a story um and I think that moment of like it just was so incredibly liberating and it was it was tied up with like moments when I'd arrived in I grew up in quite a small village in the UK where like everybody knows everybody else and like yeah. I just arrived in New York so you get this like glorious anonymity you can wear whatever you want you get to decide who you want to be every day and I was like oh shit like it doesn't matter you get it's like nothing matters like it doesn't it, other, what other people think does not matter and like since then I am like always kind and respectful I hope and I try hard to manage with love and respect and I try hard to like bring serotonin which is the happy hormone and not cortisol which is the stress hormone to like all of my dynamics and I, I, I get a massive kick out of seeing my team succeed and all of that and like and I care, obviously I care what my boss thinks and I care, you know, what my peers' opinions are, but I don't always care what they think of me in the same way. And I don't let my fear of what other people will think of me inform my decisions in the same way. And it's just, it's like someone taking shackles off your legs. It's amazing. This is such an interesting story because it, it, this happens very rarely, right? When you, you're getting so much advice in you know, life. And most of the time, right, it makes sense. You agree with that. But very rarely, you actually, you know, truly deeply incorporate it and it deeply changes the way you see things. 
So I think yeah. you know, that's a very interesting story that it actually you know, changed stuff because most of the time it, it takes such a long time to realize and, and accept <laughs> good advice. <laughs> yes, it was such a, it was like, it was like I, I was blind and then I could see. I was like, and it was so interesting because it was such a pivot in how I approached my career and like, you know, even like relationships, my friend, you know, and I, I to be clear, like my friend's opinions are important to me, like a lot of like, but it's not the first thing that I think of yeah. all the time. And I think it's a very female thing I think is to worry all the time about how right. by other people yes and it just, it is it is amazing what we're capable of when you don't think that anymore you don't you just care a lot less about what other people think and I, it's so it's just a it's something that I have to keep an eye on because I'm always you know you do occasionally I'm aware that I'm letting things bother me too much or I'm letting someone else's perception of me shape things you know shape things away from what I would you know, change my instincts about what I would want to do. But it's really like, um, I mean, it's like, it's self-confidence, isn't it? Like it sounds, yeah. it sounds stupid. Like it sounds so basic, <laughs> a profound gift when you actually connect with it in that way. So I think, yeah, I don't know. Everybody will get to a point where like the, the scales fall from your eyes and you're like, oh shit, like yeah. other people's opinion is not the most important thing. And it's just, it's a magical feeling. So I, I hope I hope it for everybody. Yeah, I, I mean it's a good feeling. It's a sad feeling at the same time, kind of to realize that you know you've been living a lie <laughs> your whole life and you've missed so much. I do think, like honestly, my career was just like so fueled by that realization, and so because it just means that every time an opportunity came up, I was like, oh, I think I might be able to do that. And, I, and like it just, everything, you know, all those statistics about the fact that women wait for to have all the qualifications before they yeah. apply for job and you know all of that stuff and like you know men will apply with 60 percent i essentially became a man i got like a I got <laughs> self-confidence of like an average man at that point <laughs> i was just like yeah you know what i can do that i think i'd be awesome at it so it's kind of <laughs> funny not to, i don't want to sound arrogant but like yeah it's just the the relationship between what you feel like you can do and the power that you give everyone else's opinion is is directly correlated i think anyway yeah 100 percent. okay so um my last question because i know we don't have uh, much time left so my last question before we wrap up uh is what's like one buzzword trending today that is you know annoying you and you disagree with it oh, we're gonna need another hour for this <laughs> so um here are the things, and they, they can all be wrapped up in, uh, in one sort of thing, which is lazy personas. Um, so uh, millennials, people mm. say, oh, like, millennials are like this, millennials are like that. Millenni millennials are a billion point two, 1.2 billion people. So they're obviously not all the same. So what are, what are we talking about here? There's also a sort of, we're seeing this coming up in the Gen Z research now, which is like Gen Z is extremely you know, they're very entrepreneurial. And then the next survey that comes out says, Gen Z is looking for a steady job. And I'm like, <laughs> this, this laziness and this refusal to acknowledge that there are tensions and that both things, two things can be true at once um, is, is really frustrating to me. And I think it's, most of our clients, I think, are starting to move away from those kind of like lazy personas because a lot of them tend to be technology companies with better data, to be honest. Like they're yeah. just, you know, behavioral data rather than um, sort of, you know, persona data. And um, but you do occasionally see it, which is like, you get a brief in, you're like, this is Angela, she's 62 and she's, you know, 
looking for a more adventurous snack. And I'm like, <laughs> Angela is on her second divorce, is having an affair, <laughs> is basically, you know, is in like sad, you know, is drinking too much because her children have left them. Whatever Angela's doing, she's doing a lot of things, but she's not looking for a more adventurous snack. So I think the thing that I would say is that we, we are, there is there are certain tropes of marketing on that evolved during previous areas that just do not stand up to like the complexity of the time that we're currently living in so yes gen z is entrepreneurial but yes they're also looking for a steady job gen z is also uh design centric but gen z is also you know they're also liberal but they're also you know there are a huge number of gen z that are kind of increasingly drawn towards like traditional institutions like the church and stuff like that so i think i i would love the marketing industry to do a better job of uh, describing the people that they're trying to talk to this is such a great answer and i can't agree with it more because you know looking at millennial descriptions and i'm part of the millennial generation i can't identify with it at all um okay so we'll wrap it up with you know our rapid fire questions so i have four okay. questions quick answers, a few words. And, you know, the first one is if you wouldn't be doing what you're doing today, what else would you do? I would be training in the Valentino Atelier. I would be working on a Valentino Couture collection. Yes, I saw. I saw that you have, uh, you know, a, a big hobby on that. You design clothes, right? Yes, and I'm obsessed with what's going on at Valentino right now. It's like, it, we can't get into it, but the, the, <laughs> he's doing with to reinvent how like fashion is uh, credited and evolved is just magical. Anyway, so yes, that's where I would be begging Amazing. for Valentino. Good. Uh, do you have a favorite social media network or maybe the most addictive ones? It, it, it really depends on the person. <laughs> Uh, so I am off all social media. I got off after I had my daughter because because I was too addicted to it and I was spending too much time on my phone. So I, I managed to get off all of it. The one thing that I would say is that the way that RGA uses Slack is endlessly entertaining and very, very funny. Um, okay. So I'm currently going that my favorite social network is Slack. Okay, good. And after Slack, because uh, it's also a work tool, what's your favorite app or tool that you use, you know, at work? Uh, at work, not so much. Can I tell you about another one that I'm really interested in? At the moment? Yeah. There's, uh, there's an app called Noom, which is, I'm training for a, a marathon and like the, the thing that I, you know, I'm, I had a baby. I'm, I, you know, I am not in any way unhappy with my body, but it's how it's when you're running a marathon, it's helpful to be slightly skinnier. So I'm just using this, a friend of mine recommended this weight loss app. And it's called Noom and it's based on behavioral science, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. But it's really, really good. And it's like so interestingly put together. And I think there's a lot of um, interface design and experience design learnings in it. I'm spending like five minutes a day on it and it's changing my behavior. And so I think there's stuff that we can learn from that. So check out Noom. It's kind of amazing. I, I will. I will definitely. I'll, I'll link it up in the, in the episode as well. And my last one is worst advice you've ever received. This is, this is, uh, I've, the worst advice I've ever received is don't, don't say what you're thinking. Basically, mm. I had a, I had a career coach once where I was, um, it, it was in a different job where I was very, um, uh, I had found out something that was not okay about the way that the company was running and I was advised to not raise it and to not uh, say it because uh, it would it would cause more problems for me in the long run. Uh, 
Um, so, and I just, one, I cannot do that. And two, I think that's terrible advice. If you see something that needs fixing that will make the culture better for everybody, then say it. And um, so that worst advice you've ever received is like, uh, it'll be too much trouble. Don't say it. Yeah. Well, good. On this uh, slightly negative <laughs> note. Good news, I said it anyway and it resolved itself. So it's all fine. <laughs> it's kind of like, I never... Oh, yeah. Yes, it's um or um I'm trying to think of a funner one. Like, <laughs> no, it's okay. Well. It's okay. I mean, I, 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 I you know, I've, I've heard this before, and I, I, I think it's just such a bad advice because it puts you in the position where um, you have to compromise yourself first of all, and then it just it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help the company. It doesn't help really anyone um so yeah yeah it does well and it's it's it creates a a, a monoculture like we want to right all of our every company needs to evolve otherwise it's going to die so telling people not to speak up on behalf of change whatever that change is is basically yeah. a way to ensure that your company dies which i'm like that that is super dumb and i refuse to be part of it so i did refuse to be part of it and everything got sorted out so i think i think the it's interesting seeing the difference between older generations and younger generations on that. Cause I think the, not to, I am, here's me stereotyping. <laughs> millennials. Yeah, no, well, millennials, no. The person you gave me advice was, uh, grew up in a time where I think women were less empowered than they are right now. Mm. You, know, you don't want people to see you as difficult. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> Revel in being difficult. Like this is like, you know, I just, so it's, yeah. Yeah. If you see, if you see something, say something, right? <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Good. Well, Jess, this was such an amazing and, and very inspiring conversation. Uh, thank you so, so much for just taking the time to sit down, talk with me and, and share your story. I really cool. enjoyed it. Thank you for everyone listening in and stay tuned uh, till next time. Thank you, Daniel. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.